Chapter 5 of Jerry McCauley, His Life and Work by Jerry McCauley and edited by Robert M. Offord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kristen Hand. Chapter 5. Water Street as it was. Go labor on, spend and be spent, thy joy to do the Father's will. It was the way the Master went, shall not the servant tread it still? But even Fitch was more than matched by Savage, another officer whose beat included the street in front of the mission house. An account of some of this man's proceedings we find prefaced with a reference to Jerry's campaign against the dens by which he was surrounded. The terrible condition of the neighborhood in which the mission was located is only too vividly seen by this account. Jerry says, About this time I became so grieved over the desolation and wickedness all around us that my soul was stirred within me and I couldn't stand it any longer. I knew it was my duty to do all I could to reach these poor fallen creatures and bring them to God, and thus check to some extent the devil's work. But it now seemed to me that someone ought to strike at the fountainhead and break up these miserable dives. I went to Blank, and he referred me to his agent, Blank, and from him I went to a number of others. I was all stirred up, and I could not sleep nights. I would toss on my bed, listening to the hideous sounds from the streets below. Cries, groans, mad laughter, and broken snatches of songs, with occasional cries of murder, murder. At daylight I would start out again to see if something couldn't be done to stop up these hell holes, the cause of all the trouble. I received plenty of promises, and that was the end of it, until, finding I had worn out a pair of shoes and received no help, I became hopeless of doing anything in that way and went for them the best I could on my own hook, trusting in God to strengthen me and give me success. And he did, until I kept the police headquarters so warm they hated to see me coming and would say when I came with a new case, there comes that Macaulay again, who in the world has he got now? The policeman who was now stationed on that beat soon began to let us know that his sympathy was with the rum sellers and dives. His name was Savage, and he was rightly named, for he was as great a savage as ever I saw. I had thought nothing could be worse than Fitch had been, but this brute was worse than all. When he couldn't think of anything else to worry us, he would walk into the mission room, in direct violation of his orders, while the meeting was going on, and stamp over to where we had a little shelf, on which a Bible and newspaper or two were usually found, and stamping as hard as he could with his great heavy boots, he would pick up a newspaper, throw it down again, and stamp, 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 all the way back to the door. And if I would go for him, he would get out before I could get at him. I was standing in the door one night while he stood outside with some of his friends, and finding he could not get in to disturb us without passing me, he commenced grinning to one of his pals. Ah, I'm not going to look after his old mission, said he, after throwing out a number of other slurs. Why, of course, I answered good and loud, of course you won't. But if I'd sling you a couple of dollars occasionally, as all these miserable gin mills do, you'd watch for me, wouldn't you? He gritted his teeth savagely and dropped his hand to his club like a flash. But I started towards him and, looking him square in the eyes, said, If you dare touch me with that club, it'll be the last job of the kind you'll ever undertake. You haven't got that poor woman to club to death now. He started back astonished and soon left me to myself. My blood was up, for I had in my mind a case which I will tell you about, to show what a brute he was and what kind of encouragement the poor fallen ones sometimes received to help them to reform. One of those poor unfortunate girls, under the influence of liquor, and not knowing what she was doing, wandered out on the street and created some disturbance by singing. 
Savage went for her and began clubbing her with his heavy night club. It was not daybreak yet, and everything else was so still we could hear her screams and distinctly count the heavy blows of the terrible club. Thug, 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 like pounding a great ox. I could not stay in bed, so running to the window I looked out to see if I could catch him at it. There was a great pile of mortar opposite us where they were building the new houses, and just as I reached the window he struck her and knocked her down into the mortar. She stretched up both hands at arm's length, begging him not to kill her. He struck first one arm and then the other with his club, and they dropped, as if broken by the blows. He then beat her out of the mortar and across to the curbstone on my side of the street. When, as she made one more effort to regain her feet, he knocked her down with another blow and she dropped on my cellar door. I dashed up the window and called to him, Hold on there. Why don't you take that woman in if she's done wrong? What do you want to kill her for, say? What's that your business? He answered as soon as he recovered from the surprise caused by hearing my voice. I'll show you in the morning, I retorted. Now you take her to the station house or I'll make you pay dear for your brutality to a helpless woman. He picked her up and started around the corner with her and I went back to bed. I learned afterwards that she became so weak, no doubt from the clubbing, that she couldn't walk, so he called another policeman like himself, and when they found her unable to go without being carried, they fell to clubbing her again, first one striking her and then the other, and those who heard it said her screams were terrific. A man was clubbed to death on the same beat about the same time under very suspicious circumstances. Part of Savage's beat was traveled during certain hours of the night by a Dutch policeman. The latter, on going over his beat one morning, found, he said, the body of a man who had undoubtedly been clubbed to death and then thrown behind a box. Savage blamed it on the poor Dutchman, and of course it would not do for me to say the former did it, as I had no personal knowledge of the fact. I take no pleasure in referring to these painful memories, but in order to rightly understand our struggles at that time, you must know something of the obstacles we had to contend with, many of which were actually brought in our way by the very ones the city was paying to protect us. During all this time, the meetings were going on first rate. But opposition was not confined to the minions of the law. Those who do not know the kind of stuff of which our hero was made may wonder that the work was not given up in despair. But besides having a fast faith in God, he was possessed of great personal courage, and opposition only served to keep his enthusiasm stirred up. At the same time, in speaking of those days of difficulty, Jerry invariably attributed his success to God. These are his words. It was a tremendous struggle to carry on this work under such difficulties, and as I look back to those stormy times, I see the mighty hand of God leading and supporting me through it all. If it had not been for his all-sustaining grace, I should have quit and got out of that wicked locality as fast as my legs would carry me, but he sustained me so fully that I did not even think to myself of giving up the fight. There was a special policeman detailed to look after the mission at night, but he soon proved as much an enemy as any until I took his number and complained of him, and he was moved out of the ward. The meetings continued to do good during all this time. The Lord poured out his blessing, souls were saved, and the devil seemed to grow more mad every day. Seeing they could not get the best of us while we were looking at them, the rabble tried some new tactics, and would wait quietly until the meetings were started and going when they would smash the windows. Someone would be praying or talking when crash would go a pane of glass. This continued until there was hardly a pane of glass left in the house. We wired them up then, and left but one exposed, this being toward the back of the building, near where the organ stood, had thus far escaped the fate of the others. The meeting had commenced one afternoon, when bang came a brick bat through the window, close by the musician's head. Oh, he exclaimed as the brick whizzed past him, what's that? 
Oh, that's nothing, I replied quickly. They send whole paving stones sometimes. That is only a piece of brick. Hallelujah, cried out one of the audience. Let them come. The Lord is our defense, so they can't harm us. It was about this time that the houses opposite being finished, they were thrown open for tenants, and a man named Johnny Wagstaff, a wretched fellow, moved in. He came with two big carloads of furniture, and strutting around made all the show he possibly could. As he was about to go into the house with the last lot of goods, some old acquaintance standing outside spoke to him, and he turned laughingly and said, Oh, I thought I'd come down here and keep Brother Macaulay company. We hated to have that rum hole there, for we had prayed God that no such place should ever prosper there. We kept on praying, and Johnny found us a thorn in his flesh, for we cut off his customers and hindered his sales. He fought hard and was determined to beat us anyway, if possible. I shall never forget one fourth of July night. They had made up their minds to fix me in the old mission that night anyway, so they procured an old barrel and placed it in the middle of the street. Then they set a watch at the door, and as soon as anyone rose to testify, they lighted a pack of firecrackers and dropped them into the empty barrel. Of course, with the terrible racket they made, a man couldn't hear his own voice. This seemed to promise to be a great success and break up the meeting entirely, and would have done so if a happy thought had not helped me out. After we had tried several times in vain to hear each other, I said to the congregation, Now, I want you to watch me. I'll select a hymn ahead of time, and the moment I say sing, just sing with all your might, and when I say testify, be ready and spring right up. A convert arose and opened his mouth, when bang, bang, bang went the fireworks in the barrel. Sing, I shouted, and they fairly roared. My, what lungs they had, and you couldn't hear those old fireworks at all. Just as soon as that pack was out, I called testify, and a brother jumped up, and before they could get the next pack ready and rightly on fire, he was through, and then we drowned the racket again with a grand old hymn. I knew they could not keep this up forever on account of the expense, and soon they quit it and began to fire the Roman candles at the back of the house. But we kept right on, and we never had a better meeting. It was certainly a lively one all through, and as one expressed it afterwards, we had a red-hot time. Several were helped spiritually, and among others, one soul was gloriously saved. Johnny grew poorer and poorer, and after a while his trouble increased daily, and at last his wife died and he gave up. He came into the mission, and I shook hands with him and talked to him kindly. He soon moved out, and it wasn't much trouble for him to move now, for instead of carloads of furniture, he had only an old scuttle partly full of coal. He died shortly afterwards, and the place was again to let. We carried the matter to God and prayed him to break up whoever came in there to sell rum, and that prayer was heard, for fifteen or sixteen failed one after the other and moved out, several having lost all their money trying to do the devil's work in that place. Of another occasion, Jerry speaks as follows. A friend whose gifts were given by the wholesale had charge of the meeting on the night in question and stood with the open Bible in his hand reading. I had not reached the chapel, but was on the stairs coming down. Mr. A. had just finished a sentence and was about to read further when a fellow let out an unearthly yell, like an Indian. Silence, he shouted, and Mr. A., who had never heard such an awful sound in his life, jumped as if he had been shot and nearly dropped the Bible from his hands. I came in a second after and couldn't think what was the matter. My wife kept nodding to me and pointing at the giant of a fellow who roared so. I didn't know anything about it, though I could see something had happened, but out of respect to the book that Mr. A. was now reading again, I asked no questions. In a moment or two, we were startled by another unearthly yell, and I walked down to where this man sat. He was a perfect giant with great, broad, massive shoulders, and his red shirt being opened at the neck showed a heavy, matted hair on his breast, making him look like a lion. 
I spoke to him kindly and told him he would have to be good or to go out and informed him that we always insisted on good order. He pointed over his shoulder to his chum sitting behind him as much to say that it was he that created the disturbance, but I paid no attention to his motions and kept on talking to him. I then went back to my seat, determined to keep an eye on him. Mr. A went on with the reading, and pretty soon I saw this bully drop his head, and in another minute he uttered that terrible yell for the third time. I knew I was in for it now, for if I let this fellow get the best of us, our last hope of ever going on with our meetings undisturbed would be gone. I thought of this, and then I looked at him, and knew that a row with such a great brute of a fellow was no joke. But the work of the Lord was at stake, so I walked down to where he sat and told him firmly he must leave. Ah, go on, he growled. What's the matter with you? Come, I answered quietly. You must go out, or I'll put you out. He looked at me a moment, but made no move to do as I told him. I then reached out and caught him by the collar, when he coolly threw his arms over the back of the seat, locking his hands together with a grip like a vice, and said with a grin, Go ahead, old fellow. I suppose he thought I could not lift him. I ran my hand down to get a good hold of his shirt collar, and surging back, I brought him to his feet, bench and all. I dragged him out into the aisle, but he clung to the long bench till one end of it suddenly struck the ceiling, and that broke his hold. I grabbed him by the throat now as he struck at me square from the shoulder and tried to hit me between the eyes. But he soon found out that I had not forgotten all I knew of the manly art when I stopped his blows cleverly and in return gave him another shove nearer the door, tightening my grip on his throat all the time. He kept hitting at me like a madman, but failed every time to get a blow home on me, while in the meantime we were getting nearer and nearer the door. When not striking at me, he would clutch at anything and everything, the benches, the heads of those near him, whatever he could get a hold of, trying to stop his progress. I felt the god of battles was my helper, and I was bound to win. It was like a battle between the kingdoms of good and evil. By the time we got to the door, we were in such a fearful struggle that when we struck the doors, about two inches thick and built of hard wood, we carried them clear off the hinges and split one door all up. By this time, he was black in the face from my grip on his throat, and he gasped, Let go! L-E-T-G-O! I'll behave! L-E-T-G-O! J-E-R! J-E-R-R-Y! Ah! I said as I gave him one more squeeze and a tighter one, and shoved him off. Ah, ah, you great old coward, you're no man after all. He begged hard, and I let him go. When we got out on the sidewalk where I had dragged him, I found it had been a put-up job, for across the street stood a lot of his chums shouting, Give it to him, Jackson. Give old Hallelujah Jerry fits. But they did not try to help him. He won't give it to him, nor you either, I replied. As soon as Jackson caught his breath, he ran across the street where there was a new building, and he and some of the rest picked up bricks and prepared to brick-bat me. I didn't give him time, but walking coolly over to them, I said, Ah, you cowards! Drop those bricks. Drop them. And they did, and ran for their lives. I then saw two policemen standing, looking on, and laughing at them. I then returned to the mission and joined in singing Rock of Ages Cleft for Me, which they'd been singing all through the row. Things went on about as usual after this, but the would-be disturbers were a little more careful for fear of meeting with a similar defeat, for this man Jackson was one of the worst men in that worst of streets. After a while, however, another disturber came in and thought he would try a new trip on me. He made some disturbance, but I saw he had been drinking and said, Don't mind that poor fellow, friends. He has been taking a little too much gin. Not a drop of gin, Jerry, he replied. Nothing but good old bourbon whiskey. 
I saw he had got to be bounced, so I started up a good ham and went for him. When he saw me coming, he laid right down on his back on the floor, thinking I couldn't get him out in that position. It may be he had heard how I put Jackson out and took this way of getting the best of me. All right, young man, says I, if you prefer going out that way, I've no objections. And taking him by the collar on the back of his neck, I dragged him down the aisle and out he went. End of chapter five.